All right, we're continuing our, our uh, current journey in this discussion of creation, fall, redemption, and reconciliation. And last week we looked at creation, and for those of you who weren't with us, we are looking at these categories within the context of, of Romans. Um, and so we're looking at how Paul took this redemptive uh, story and used it as a framework to build out the truth and the power of the gospel. And we talked about last week how important story is and how important it is to know that we're part of something bigger than ourselves, right? That it's not just, it doesn't just end with us and it doesn't begin with us, which is incredibly important. Because if you thought it began with you and you thought it ended with you, then you would think you were God. And you would usurp that creator-creature distinction, which we saw from Romans chapter 1, is such a cre- uh, an incredible and important thing for us to understand, because if we don't understand it, um, then we, we violate it all the way around. And so, um, and we also talked about how that, that legitimately, and we're even going to see this in Romans chapter 3 as we look at it this morning, that is legitimately the primary problem. And so it's not primarily that we have a moral problem. So it's not primarily that we, we, if we could just fix some of the things that we got wrong, we could get a lot better, right? Um, how many of you uh, have ever had, and this is a rhetorical question by the way, um, a life besetting sin, an addiction of some kind or something that just plagued you? Um, how easy is it to make some of the behavioral modifications necessary to read enough books, to go to enough counseling, to do enough stuff to make it all better? And really, sometimes, and I think you can get better with some of those things, but here's the problem. Here's what you can't do. You cannot make it go away in total. And you cannot make yourself as if that had never happened in the first place, which is what atonement really is, is to totally transform you in the sense before God as if you were never a sinner in the first place. And we prove time and again there's no way we can do that. Even creation points us in that direction. And so um, as we look this morning, it's going to be critical that we recognize that knowing what the problem is, is absolutely critical. Because if you don't know what the problem is, how in the world would you know what the cure is? How would you know what to apply to the problem? How would you know where to look even for the cure to the problem if you got the problem wrong in the first place? And so this is critical because Paul, I want to remind us, is, and I want to look back at this and read this again, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Remember, this is the main thesis of Romans. This is what he is trying to prove and unpack with all that he's saying. And as we talked about, from, from 8, 118 all the way through chapter 3, what he's doing is laying the axe to the root of the tree of any ability that we might have to save ourselves. And that is critical. And so listen at what the thesis is again. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so the whole of the book of Romans is unpacking that magnificent reality. And if you don't know that, you can get caught up in some of the proof texting and you can get off in some of the backwaters and tangents if you're not careful. And so, as we saw last week, he first took the Gentiles to task and said, listen, you might would try to say, well, look, we didn't have the book, dude. Nobody gave us the instructions. How are you going to hold me accountable for a set of rules I never knew were there? How does Paul answer them? 
He says, listen, here's the problem. You knew there was something bigger than you. You knew you were finite and that there was something infinite above you that created you. You knew there was a creator and you chose to fashion him in your own broken and finite image so that you could control him as if he was a little golden calf. He didn't say that part now, did he? But we know that's that's implicit within the whole of the biblical story. We've done this before. And it didn't go well then, it didn't go well now. And we talked about how we do that again and again. And so the the Gentiles and those who did not have the scriptures can't say, well, brother, I didn't know. No, you did know. You, You knew enough that you should have sought out the God who created you in a very humble and submissive way saying, Lord, you tell me who you are, not me tell you who I think you are or want you to be. And now Paul is going to turn from that in chapter 2 to the ones who have the book, the Jews. And he's going to say, now, here's a problem for you guys. You had the rules. You had all that you needed, and it didn't help. You didn't follow it either, and so you too are without excuse, you, the people of the book, because you have also forsaken the creator. You also have usurped that creator-creature distinction and taken even the law and fashioned it into your own image and made it into a thing that you could use to keep others out and think you could protect yourself within. Now, do we do that today at all? Anybody guilty of that, don't yell out any names or denominations or any of that kind of stuff because it's us. It is us. We too take and try to forget the truth of the fall. We do it with our children if we're not careful, and I'm guilty. I have frequently forgot with my children that they were broken from within and there was not much I could do from without that was going to save them if God did not work in them first. That didn't advocate me from keeping the gospel before them, mind you, but it did mean that I did not need to put the pressure on them or myself that I did. And so um, we must know what is the magnitude of the problem in order to find the cure. Listen to what Douglas Moo says. He says, the problem is that people are helpless prisoners of sin. Now, why is that important? Mainly because our understanding of someone's problem dictates the answer to the problem. Let me read that again. The problem is that people are helpless prisoners of sin. Why is this important? Mainly because our understanding of someone's problem dictates the answer to that problem. Now, the question for us is, how bad is sin really? How many of you have heard the term total depravity? That's a big kind of reform term. That It's the tea and tulip. Um, but there's been some who've changed the, that first word to radical depravity. James Montgomery Boyce and Philip Ryken in their book Doctrines of Grace and others have picked up on this. Because the truth is, are you as bad as you could be? No, and I'm not either. But that ain't good news either, by the way. It's still bad news. And so they want to be careful that we don't overstate the problem that, which can sometimes create what we call worm theology. Which is, you so whip yourself scarred that you can never enjoy the fruit of your salvation and the, and, the, and the belovedness that you now are in Christ alone. And so one of the things we want to be very, very careful of is that we don't over-diagnose the problem in the sense that it, it ruins our ability to actually have a cogent witness in the world. Because here's how it sometimes goes. Think about this. 
If you've ever engaged someone who is uh, a radical anti-theist like I used to be, or uh, an agnostic, or someone anywhere on that spectrum, one of the things that they push against is this idea of total depravity. Because they say, what's the most ignorant thing I've ever heard of? People do good stuff all the time. I can help old ladies across the street. I can give to the poor. I can take someone into my home. I had a family take me into their home, basically adopted me at 18. How many of you are looking to adopt an 18-year-old? Exactly. Just that guy back there. And I don't know what's, that's weird. And so, uh, and so uh, don't, don't let him adopt an 18 year old. That could end poorly for him and the person. And so, so here was a family that took me in that didn't care one whit about Jesus. And I am still welcome at Christmas and Thanksgiving and in their home. And they've treated me as if I were blood. And they still love me now that I'm a pastor, although they say, you know, it's, it's, it's got barbs in it when they mention it. So, Reverend, which I tell my brother, you work for the CDC, an equally mythological organization, so don't give me that stuff. So anyway, <laughs> so anyway um, it, it, it is critical that we not diagnose this thing wrongly because, again, we just look foolish. Now, is because is, if the issue was that the problem was about being able to do good works, then do we need Jesus? No, you can do good works as far as the world is concerned. The critical problem is can you please the Lord? And does the scripture say that good is enough for him? I was just having a conversation with a young man the other day about this because you got to think about this for a second. If God is eternal, then in order for him to be pleased, whatever is offered to him has to be equally eternal, right? It can't be just temporary. And so if to please him who is eternal, you need eternal goodness or eternal righteousness or perfection, how many of you can say with a straight face that you're you're good? All of us have messed up and fallen short of the glory of God, have we not? And if that's true, then we need an eternal cure. And we need a perfect cure. And we need something that is going to span the whole of that, not just mere what you and I would call good deeds, but only that which is approved by the Lord himself. Amen? So the truth is, how bad is our sin problem really? Well, at minimum, it's eternally bad. And that's bad. And so we need to be careful about getting caught up in the categories of goodness and morality and ethics as the primary issue. Should we address those issues? Absolutely, but they come out of a discussion of what the primary problem is, which Paul is going to start straight away with in the passage that we're going to look at. So if you would, turn to Romans 3, 9 through 12. <coughs> now the first verse, he's going to sum up what he's been saying in chapter basically 118 through 3.8. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greeks, are under sin. So what he just said there is that that we are all under the dominion of sin, which means that sin reigns over us. If you think about that, that's even bigger than just good deeds, bad deeds. That is something that is a principality and power. That is something deeper than just my works. And so to be delivered from the dominion of sin, I need a king, 
A king who can reign eternally so that sin could never return. A king who can actually take sin and drive it so far out of creation and, and, and far beyond the new creation that it could never, ever be seen, heard, or experienced again. See, the problem is far more total than we've given it credit for in the big scope of things. And so Paul straight away is saying, we are all in trouble. And he goes on, and he's going to string together a list of verses from Psalms and Isaiah, and maybe from some, they could also be pulled from Ecclesiastes and a couple of other places. But what he's doing is, is, as some rabbis refer to this, is stringing together pearls. He is taking truth and making sure that they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that, the, that God's word itself has diagnosed accurately the problem. So listen to what he says, because in this first part, he's going to diagnose the primary problem, which is our rebellion against the Lord God. He says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And notice what he just said there. What was the emphasis in those passages? It is that we, as hard as we might would want to try, and as much as we would long for, can never reach God in our own abilities. Like I said, if you don't have the ability to be righteous, then how can you go before the Lord our God and not be destroyed by his holiness? How gracious is he that he has yet to show up, that he continues to tarry to allow for the family to grow larger. And so he is diagnosing the problem as primary is that we have turned against God. Listen to what John Stott says in the message of Romans. He says, sin is the revolt of the self against God. Notice who he didn't mention. No one else. No one else was mentioned. No, sin primarily, uh, the, the actual highest part of it, the biggest problem is that it is against God. Think about what David said when Nathan confronts him. Think about the, the words he wrote in Psalm 51. Who did he say he sinned against? He said, did Uriah get mentioned? Because if anybody deserved to be mentioned in that moment, it was Uriah. One of the mighty men of God who served David with the whole of his life and gave his life up willingly for a man who had stolen his wife. How wretched is that? And, it, and you got to remember, did only Uriah die that day as a result of David's sin? No, there was a host of men who lost their lives as they stormed the front to be slaughtered. So it wasn't just Uriah who was sacrificed on that day. But interestingly, nowhere does David say, Uriah, I'm sorry. Bathsheba. Didn't he sin against her too, dragging her as king into his web of deceit and lies and murder? What about that child who is unnamed, who didn't even make it to the eighth day, who died on the seventh day, which is significant? What happens on the eighth day? You become a covenant child in the sense that you're circumcised and brought in, but he died on the seventh day. Nameless. He owed him an apology too. What about the entire kingdom, which will eventually be rent in two? He didn't apologize to them either. Who's he apologized to? Who does he say he sinned against alone? Against you, God, alone have I sinned. 
So it's in incredibly important for us if we're going to understand the gravity of the situation, the magnitude of the problem, if we're going to engage this world in any sort of apologetic or a missionality or care for our neighbors or even love our children well, we must understand the problem. And your children, interestingly, are going to rage against God without any provocation from the culture. They are going to reject him straight away in a variety of ways as they reject you and your authority over them. They will do it with, if you homeschool them. They will do it if you send them to a charter school. They will do it if you send them to public school. They will do it if you send them to private school. They will do it if you put them in a bubble and, and stow them away and only feed them once in a while. They will do it. Why? Because where does this come from? Is it external to them? Is it based solely upon behavior? Are they neutral until they mess up the first time? Do we come into the world a blank slate? as most of our culture believes, as most of Christianity believes practically, passively? No, they don't. No, they don't. And so it's critical that we teach them from very early on who the Lord their God is and not think that they cannot understand at some point, you must teach it simply. I don't think it's wise to break out Bavink's four volumes and lay it before your child or read that to the child in the womb necessarily. Eh, it might be fun, I don't know. But you want to be able to, to apply it in a way that they can understand. But how, how hard is it to know that you did not create yourself? That ain't hard to figure out, is it? And so we must recognize that we are sinning against God. Listen to what the rest of what he says. He says, sin is the revolt of the self against God, the dethronement of God with a view to the enthronement of oneself. Ultimately, sin is self-deification. You make yourself God. The reckless determination to occupy the throne which belongs to God alone. That is the fundamental issue with sin, is that we want to usurp God. Not that we want to offend other people, uh, but we want to, to determine the future. We want to determine who God is. We want to determine the story. So it's critical that we first answer the question, what is our rebellion primarily? And I know this can get into tricky philosophical waters, because I know the term morality gets thrown around in a lot of different ways, but... Is our problem primarily moral? Meaning that we just, if we could just get our behavior together, we'd be okay. Is that the primary problem? No. Now tell me, what is the majority of the, the cure offered in our culture, in our world, and even, unfortunately, within Christianity itself? What is offered to us as the cure? Get your morality together, Right? Fake it till you make it, get it together, and, you know, it'll probably work out. Well, that is to, to fail to actually rightly order the creator and the creature. Again, even in that, you are making the creature higher than the creator himself. And we're making this mistake over and over again. So if it's not moral, if we would agree, or if we could come to the conclusion that the primary problem is not moral, but the morality is evidence of the primary problem, um, what is the primary problem? Well, it's covenantal. And what does that mean? Remember uh, the, the definition that we got from Steve Garber a few weeks ago that covenant has kind of three facets to it. Relationship, revelation, and responsibility. 
And so when we are violating covenant, what we're violating primarily is the relationship itself with God. Now tell me, how good of a relationship do you all have with people that are constantly trying to knock you down from where you are? How many of you say, man, I can't wait to get there with Cameron because he really helps me know how stupid I am. He really helps me to know what a worthless person I am. I just, man, I'm going to have that guy over for dinner and just, uh, just bask in the glory of my wretchedness. No, that's not, you, no. Or if you've ever had a job and someone was trying to take you out in that job, you weren't trying to hang out with that person um, unless you were doing Sun Tzu's keep your friends close but your enemies closer, right? Um, but, you know, the whole thing is that we don't enjoy being around those who are trying to usurp us and destroy us. Well, that's what we are doing to the Lord our God. And that is why the, pro- the, the primary issue is relational covenantal. And we're trying to fashion his revelation into our own image, which means we cannot ever discover who he really is, if that's how we're going to do it. And we want responsibility to be based on our own terms, right? Well, you know, I know God said this, but that's an antiquated idea. That was far back in the Old Testament. And then we say, well, it's actually in the New Testament. Well, Yeah, equally antiquated. It's just not something we need to worry about. I stick to the red letters. Well, which ones? Which ones are you sticking to? Or I just, you know, I think the truth is in there. Well, how the heck would you ever figure it out? I mean, it's just it's crazy the stuff that we come up with and that we don't realize how it is actually utterly destroying our ability to relate and enjoy the Lord our God. So it's incumbent upon us, it's critical that we recognize that the issue is covenantal primarily and um, that this has significant implications for redemption, doesn't it? So if the, if the problem isn't moral, then what's not going to fix it? Behavioral modification is not going to fix the problem. You keeping the law as you think you could is not going to fix the problem. You giving to the church is not going to fix the problem. You coming to church once every six, seven, eight weeks is not going to fix the problem. You serving in some ministry is not going to fix the problem. It's not. Only when our hearts are oriented rightly in worship is the problem beginning to be fixed, which is why we make such an emphasis on the corporate gathering and what we do here in worship. That's why it's, I'm, I push so hard for us to know the biblical story and for us to know the God who created the story. Because nothing else is going to save you. It may make you feel better for a time, but it will only lead to you saying, Lord, look at all that I did in your name. And him to say, no, you worker of lawlessness, depart from me, for I have never known you. I don't care what you thought you knew. So it is is critical that we first recognize the primary issue is covenantal, and the cure is related to that covenantal aspect of things. So only that which can restore the relationship with God is what can save us. Now, there is a moral, ethical outworking, as we're going to see in verses 13 through 18. So turn back to the text now. Let's read that together. Paul says, Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. That's a snake, by the way. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace. They have not known. 
There is no fear of God before their eyes. So now we see that the outworking of us rebelling against God the creator is that we then turn and rebel against all of creation. We go to war with all of those around us. Unless you think, well, I've never done, I've never killed anybody. Well, here we go again if we're going to do the red letters, by the way. There's that thing called the Sermon on the Mount. And Christ took the law and made it a whole lot harder in my mind. He said, it's not just about what you would do with your hand. It's what happens in your mind and your heart. And it is as if you had committed it in real life. Now, I don't know about you, but if you um, drive at all up here, I don't know what's unique about up here versus making, but I have noticed that people take great pleasure in pulling out in front of other people. It's like I, I told my wife, I said, and I learned this real quick, I said, listen, if you think they're going, they're going. And uh, there's one place in particular on our road, it's a subdivision that's filled with all these people that that's their primary function in life is to pull out in front of other people. Because if you pull up on that, <laughs> on that place, they do, they just whip right out in front of you. And, and little, you know, little did I understand that it was really about sanctification, so I'm kind of glad they're there. So, uh, <laughs> so, so we, we understand this, don't we? We, we? we get that we don't love people as we ought, and that there are things that we think in our heart and our mind that's, that's going to be very, very destructive to us. And, and so we get that we have a moral ethical problem. But again, if you don't get where it comes from, then you're going to be a, a dog chasing your tail. You're never going to arrive at where you need to get to. So is there some necessity for us to be obedient? Absolutely. What did Christ say? If you love me, keep my commandments, which he said are these two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbors yourself. And on these two things hang all the law and the prophets. What's interesting about this setup so far is how does Paul address this issue? Primarily the issue is us not loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind. And now, as a result of that, we are not able to love our neighbor as we ought to. Without the heart that is rightly oriented in worship, you will never be able to have any sort of morality or ethic that's going to make a difference in this world one iota in the end. Everything that you heap up will be swept away when the storm comes. And so... We also have to recognize that there is a moral outworking. Listen to what Leon Morris says. He recognizes this. He says, their interest is in bloodshed and destruction, not in peace. From which we see that sin not only separates people from God, but from one another as well. And so we, we see straight away that we don't even have the ability to, to fake it really till we could make it. We don't. It comes out at some point, doesn't it? And whether anybody else knows it or not, it's inconsequential because the Spirit sees all. And that which you think you do in the dark is actually, unfortunately, done in the light before the throne. So, um, what is it that our morality and our ethics ultimately reflect? Well, it reflects your understanding of worship. If I want to know what you believe about God, it's really easy for me to figure out. Just spend any amount of time with you at all and it'll come out. What you say about other people, what you say about other people groups, what you say about certain kinds of sins that are those that you think are respectable and those that you think are not, tells me what kind of God it is that you think you worship. It's, it's really easy to see. And does that mean we've got to be perfect? No. In fact, one of the most beautiful circumstances for us to witness is when someone messes up, what they do with it also tells me all about what it is they worship. 
And, and it's one of the most beautiful things that people can see is you mess up and then where you turn so that they could get a picture of what's going to be reality for them as well. And so uh, it is critical that we recognize that worship has a significant impact on our morality and our ethics. Which is why it is so critical for us to, as the corporate church, to gather and worship God as he said he ought be worshipped. And not in the ways that we've come up with. Not in the ways that make us feel better about ourselves. This is why it's critical for us to engage in devotional activity on a regular basis. This is a reality that we need to return to again and again and again because guess what? I don't know about you, but I have a short memory. I forget. I forget so magnificently that it's embarrassing at times. And so we also need discipleship. We need all phases of what it is that helps to orient our hearts to worship because we are engaged in what uh, some have referred to as a glory war. We are constantly trying to have our glory usurp the very glory of God. We are constantly battling for understanding the, what the culture is offering in terms of what is truly glorious and what is not. And so, um, the motivation and the goal for our morality and ethics should be right worship of the Lord our God. So that we would actually have the storehouse of power that he promised us in the Holy Spirit. Given by Christ as he ascended to serve the church, which we access so very little. This is why we here at Christ Community seek to be Trinitarian in our worship, recognizing that all three members are critical to us, not just one. Now, the rest of this, Paul is going to finish laying the axe to the root of the tree, showing clearly that no matter how hard you try, you cannot save yourself. Now, isn't that fair? How, how horrible would it be if he didn't tell us the truth? If God did not reveal to us the magnificence and the totality of the bad news, only for us to get there someday and figure out, well, wait a minute, none of us had it right. And there's no way to be saved now. So Paul, picking up verse 19, says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, some of you may say, yeah, well, I'm, I'm not trying to keep the law. I do other things. <laughs> right, let me see if I get this straight. So that which God has clearly laid out in the Ten Commandments, Book of Leviticus, Deuteronomy, um, that which is, he's clearly kind of laid out, you, you don't really care too much for. You don't need that. You've come up with your own set of rules that you think will be pleasing to the Lord God. That's, that's the height of insanity. You might as well pick a whole other religion. Because to say that you would worship God if the thing that he gave cannot save you that was made clear, what in the world makes you think you're going to come up with something that he would go, oh, yeah, I mean, I didn't even think about that, guys. I'm so thankful you came up with I don't. I'm glad I created y'all. It's not how it's going to go, is it? And so Paul really is trying to make so clear what he said in Romans 1, 16 and 17, that the only power of salvation is the gospel alone 
given in Christ alone, by God's grace alone, and achieved by your faith alone. Now you may say, whoa, there you go. You messed up. You gave me a work, didn't you? You told me to have faith. Was faith a work? No, faith is a confession. Faith is a submission. Faith is an admission that you are not God and you never will be. And that you need the creator God to save you. And that you need him to do that in his, in his son's perfect work and person alone. That is faith. And you never let go of that all of your days. And then he goes on to tell us what the cure actually is. Verse 21, but now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You did not fall short of the edicts of the law. You did not fall short of the glory of the law. You fell short of the very glory of God. And in so doing, there is no way you can keep the law. There is no way you can be pleasing in any other way, shape, or form. If you do not have the glory of God, you cannot please him. And if you have fallen short of it, there's no way to make up the difference. He goes on to say, And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or payment by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Listen to what Charles Hodge says about this this section of scripture. He says, this is the conclusion which the apostle has had in view from the beginning of his argument. His whole design is to prove that men cannot be justified by their own righteousness, and women as well, in order to prepare them to receive the righteousness of God. So did you just hear that? Let me read that last part again because this is the critical piece of the puzzle. Because if all you hear is the bad news, what hope do you have? If all you had was the bad news, which is, hey, you you can't please God no matter what you do. What will be your, your fundamental philosophy? Well, then eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. But that's not the end of the news, is it? Let me read that again. His whole design is to prove that men or humanity cannot be justified by their own righteousness in order to prepare them to receive the righteousness of God. Paul has given us the full of the bad news, not to guilt us, not to shame us, not to destroy us, not to send us into a spiral of despair or to send us into some sin binge that would make people cringe all over the world. No, he has brought this to our attention out of grace. and love for us, his people, it is a merciful act that he gives us the bad news. Because it is only in understanding the problem that we will actually seek the cure. And he has stated very clearly that there is but one cure for you. There is but one means by which you can be declared righteous before the Lord your God. And that is in Christ alone. 
And so this is why we, the church, cannot afford to only give you the good news. This is why we cannot afford to only preach that which would make you feel ultimately all good about who you currently are. This is why we cannot say, hey, Christ accepts you as you are, and then not tell you that, but he doesn't leave you as you are. See, that's the part that so often gets left off, right? We want to say, come as you are, and I'm, I, and I'm for that. I don't want anybody in this congregation here this morning to hear me say, your struggle is not welcome here. No, in fact, this is the best place in the world for you to engage in that struggle because the glory war is won here. And I don't want you to ever be ashamed of the struggle because we're all in it. We are all at war in this respect. But what I do want you to know is that we are not content to leave you broken and bleeding and suffering with no hope at all. While we will tell you the bad news and we will pull no punches and mince no words about its gravity, we also want to make sure that you know the good news the great news of Christ who saves you, of, of this Christ who died to pay for that which you could not pay for, to deliver you from the grip and dominion of sin and the power of death and the very wrath of God, that he would lay down his life and add his perfection to us in such a way that when God looks on us, he says, no, those are my sons and daughters, no longer my enemies. That is great news, isn't it? Now, you may be thinking, well, Cameron, from what you're saying, there's no need for you to preach that sermon next week. It's on redemption. We've got a two-for-one here. No, I just couldn't leave you with just the bad news and say, now, come back next week and hope you get it then. I, if you notice, I did extend this passage a little bit because even from what I, I sent out earlier, because I just, the more I looked at it, the more I said, I cannot withhold the good news, even if it fits with some little ethos I've come up with. And so please hear me. That our condition apart from Christ is truly and utterly broken and despairing. And there's nothing that you can do to be pleasing to God. There's no way that you can gain God's glory by your own hand. You just can't do it. But God was in great mercy and grace not content to leave it that way. He would be perfectly just in destroying this world and granting none of us salvation. Because he is the creator. Which means how much greater is his mercy and grace that he would choose not to excise his justice on his creation but instead provide the propitiation on which his justice was fully poured out for his sons and daughters. So as we recognize that, that gives us great cause for pause and worship. Again, I want to encourage you my Sabbath day practice, I encourage it to be your Sabbath Lord day, Lord's Day practice. Make sure that at some point today you stop and give thanks for all that the Creator God has truly done for you. So often, again, we, we struggle with this, don't we? We just don't even, know, we don't even know what to give thanks for. But yes, you do. Give thanks for Christ, and that should never grow old. You should never tire of giving thanks for the cure that continues for all of eternity. And if you need reminding... Come drive with me someday, and we will discover the great need. Uh, <laughs> so um, keep also in mind that no part of the redemptive process depends on you, and that's good news to you too. 
Because as much as I have failed, if you're anything like me, and I don't want to necessarily put that crown of thorns on you, and that's, that's bad news coming from the pastor, by the way. I don't live up to any of the stuff. If it weren't for Christ, I would have nothing to give you. If it weren't for Christ, I'd have nothing at all. Let's hear, as we close out, John Stott's words again uh, from the message of Romans. He says, our first response to Paul's indictment then should be to make it as certain as we possibly can that we ourselves accept this divine diagnosis of our human condition as true. Now, you could pull from other places in Scripture and say this. You need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He goes on to say, and that we have fled from the just judgment of God on our sins to the only refuge there is, namely Jesus Christ, who died for our sins. It's critical that we examine ourselves and make sure that we understand the bad news, but even more importantly and more beautifully that we understand the good news. It breaks my heart. There's a a guy that uh, is a singer-songwriter who early in his career was one of the worship leaders for Mars Hill, which was Mark Driscoll's church in Seattle. So it was in the very beginning. His name is Dave Bazan, and he was in a band called Pedro the Lion. And this song actually comes from a period in his life where he was still a believer but was beginning to struggle. Listen to what he says in this song. And the song is entitled, quite interestingly, Letter from a Concerned Follower. He says, I hear that you don't change. Who do you think he's talking to? God. He says, how do you expect to keep up with the trends? You won't survive the information age unless you plan to change the truth to accommodate the brilliance of men. Yes, the brilliance of men. That is the height of usurping the creator-creature distinction. What's interesting is this song, when he wrote it, was a satire actually toward those who thought they were so evolved that they could usurp the creator. Because in the song, it goes on to talk about the new math that man has created where there are no wrong answers. And so what's interesting is Davison followed suit. Now he denies Christ vehemently and has become one of the strongest voices, at least within his community, against Christianity. Because he failed to diagnose the problem rightly. He failed to bend his knee to the creator who created him. He gave up on the things that mattered to him most. So for us, what do we take away from this morning? We need to understand that our rebellion is, in fact, total as a result of the fall. And the totality really is in reference to our rebellion against God, first and foremost, as we utterly reject his covenant relationship. And then it is total in the sense that it creates a secondary issue of selfishness and destruction in terms of our morality and our ethics. And thirdly, that We are utterly unable to save ourselves regardless of the revelation that we have before us. It doesn't matter if all we have is creation. It doesn't matter if we have scripture. It doesn't matter if we have both together. Neither can save us. But it does evidence that our need for total renewal can only be accomplished in the one who is perfect and eternal. The one who laid down his life for us, Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for loving us enough to tell us the truth. Thank you for caring enough for us 
to provide what we could not provide for ourselves. Father, thank you for your word being so penetrating into our hearts. God, I pray that though it pierces to the bone and the marrow, I pray that in Christ, the power of the Spirit, you would heal us to your glory. If there's anyone in here this morning, Lord, who is struggling as they examine themselves to see the full gravity of the situation, or if they're totally hung up on the bad news and can't yet see the good news, would you, in great kindness this day, move in their heart and their soul to open their eyes, to open their ears, and to take that heart of stone which is despairing and break it open, and may the sweet aroma of the gospel pour forth in that heart of flesh that is created brand new. God, if there's anybody in here this morning who can't stand to hear the bad news and only wants the good news, then God, I pray that, that uh, they would recognize that it's not only about the good news, it is when we see how bad it was that it allows us to worship in greater ways, that it is in your sovereignty that you keep this reality before us. It is part of our story whether we like it or not. And it is an ongoing part of our story as we continue between the now and the not yet where there are principalities and powers that reign in sin's dominion. And yet, we know, Lord, that you reign even now as you sit at the right hand of God the Father and that, that nothing can overtake us, your children, that you have not ordained, that you have not sovereignly called to come to pass, and that is even for our good and your glory. God, thank you that you care enough to be involved in this world that you care enough to be involved in our lives. May we this day honor and glorify you. Amen.